This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. And a big shout out to one of our special podcast partners, Dex.com. They wear receipt bank. They've been through a great rebound. There's a lot of great stuff going on there, Martin, isn't there, at Dex? You know what, Rob? I always speak to accounting firms about having a strong, uh, clearly articulated value proposition really early on in their messaging. You know, as soon as you see that firm, it tells you something. When I go to Dex.com, that's D-E-X-T.com, it says right in front of me, we make accountants and bookkeepers and the businesses you advise more productive, profitable, and powerful with better data and insights. Those three illustrative P's there, productive, profitable, and powerful. What a great, clear value proposition. So, as accounting practitioners listening to this, if you're looking to make your firm more productive, profitable, and powerful, not just for you, but for the businesses you advise, go to dext.com, that's D-E-X-T, dot com and start a free trial or book a demo love that dex gives you more time and better data to advise on your clients and businesses so your accountants get over to dex.com thank you welcome to our special guest interview and back for the second time by popular demand gary sheamus good day gary good day gary last time we spoke about the managing partner priority list you've been in this game a long time and uh, we've got your bio and your background here in our show notes you've been managing firms for a long long time you sold out you're now training managing partners and through winding river doing all kinds of great things which we shared about on the last episode what's changing in the accounting profession right now gary and, and what kind of shape is it in? well i don't know if it's which you know, what's changed is this whole element of this cultural side of it because of uh, the pandemic and the virtual office. I mean, that's a big change. And I don't think we have that figured out yet. I think that's a work in progress from the profession. Um, I wrote an article. It was in accounting today. Um, it was, it was kind of crazy. Uh, we put this article on LinkedIn after we wrote it. And I had about 20,000 people look at it. I've written all kinds of stuff. You know, if I have 300 people, I'm like, you know, jumping and doing hula hoops. Uh, here we have 20,000. And really what it was talking about was, uh, I think the way I said it was, uh, uh, we all went to bed on uh, March 16th, uh, 2020, and we woke up, it was March 17th, 2030. And what happened was 10 years had passed in one day. And uh, there's no doubt if you really think about it, from an evolutionary standpoint of what happened with technology and being able to use the resources that were there at the time the technology was available. There is no doubt that we would be today where we are today in 2030, we just didn't expect to get there in eight hours. And that's really amazing. And it's a lot to take. And, uh, you know, I remember talking to so many firms and so many firms were just like, they, they were just so proud of themselves for the ability to be able to do this overnight. Um, and, and they were, but a lot of them just didn't really understand the cultural elements of how this was going to change. So I still think we're dealing with that. We're dealing with remote workers. We're dealing with virtual workers. We're dealing with you know, our ability to socialize like we used to. Uh, and, uh, um, and, 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 you know, that actually goes into opportunities in terms of clients where you wouldn't have clients outside of your territory. Now you could, but there's just so many changes that have happened uh, regarding that, which from a cultural standpoint, um, I think firms have to have a very open mind. I think we have to be in a learning type of thing. And maybe to a certain extent, we have to be in a, uh, you know, an, an element where we're willing to try some things just to see if they would work or not. But that's really been huge. You know, the other element that uh, is, is, I'd say, the pace of what's happened in the United States in terms of uh, the mergers and acquisition side of it. Um, every year I talk with my good buddy who does most of the M&A here, Alan Colt. And every year it's kind of like, uh, 
it'll never happen like it did again last. And, uh, you know, here we are, you know, eight years out and it just keep, continues going and accelerating at a different pace rate. There's so much change, but there's so many drivers of change. We haven't really talked about technology and this is the second interview we've done together. There's lots of emerging technologies and, and the private equity money coming into the world now in accounting. There's a lot to say about that. Yeah. Well, the private equity, uh, to me, that's really interesting. Uh, so um, it's it's really interesting because if, if you, I think what you need to do is you need to look at history. I'm not sure that they've looked at history as much as they have, or maybe they should. I'm probably, I'm probably wrong. These guys are pretty thorough in terms of what- Well, accounting doing. history, they've done it the same way for hundreds of years, Gary, haven't they? <laughs> Profit and loss. <laughs> but in, in the States in the 1990s, I mean, what happened was we saw this consolidation that ended up in uh, where you had really H&R Block, you had American Express, and you had a company called CBiz. Those three companies successfully put together a consolidation of accounting firms, really looking with a public type of platform to do so. Um, American Express, they're gone. H&R, they're gone. Both of those uh, folded into RSM. So RSM, you know, that's where they got most of their bandwidth from was the failures of those in trying to do it. CBiz is still around. But if you need to, you need to really look at CBiz, I think, to have a good understanding as to where firms need to focus on going forward and the private equity. And if you look at private equity and you look at the uh, at public companies, I mean, what, what you see is the same thing. You know, they're looking to satisfy their shareholders and they're looking and how do they satisfy their shareholders, either with current earnings or with, uh, you know, they sell it to somebody else, okay, to enhance the earnings that are there. So the challenge is you take, an, you take a, something that's been around for a long time, 100 years plus, and doing it one way, and, and how do you enhance the earnings, okay, within these organizations, okay, that acquired it to want to go public, to satisfy shareholders to invest, or to sell it down the road to somebody else? And that's the real challenge. So go back and look at CBiz when they first started. CBiz was a consolidation of almost all accounting firms. I think there may have been 100 of them, relatively small firms. And they amassed to maybe a two or three or $400 million accounting firm, okay? That stock stayed the same forever. Seven bucks a share, didn't move, went down to $2 a share. Now it's selling at $43 a share. Okay. Look at CBiz today. CBiz today is a $1.2 billion company that is driven by advisory service. It is not driven by accounting. So I think CBiz figured out the accountants maybe were the, uh, the distribution model, but they weren't the profit. So when you look at these private equities, you just have to think, you know, in order for them to be successful, they have to der derive additional profits. And where are they going to derive them from? You really have to derive them from the advisory. It's hard to do it from accounting because it's a personal service business. Rob Brown goes, he works really hard. He brings in all these clients. He makes this money. And it's like, well, I, I you know, I provided the service. I get paid. Where do we siphon off a portion of that and move it to somebody else, you know, who's invested in us? So, so a lot of it just becomes with this ability to use technology, to use money, uh, to use human capital in a way that's going to be more profitable than what firms are today. I think CBIS proved, um, again, looking at them today, I think their accounting firm today could be $400 million and $800 million is coming through add-on advisory services. It's a crazy world. And we've got a situation here where you've coined this phrase before, Gary, that the accounting practices are boomer-owned and millennial-compromised. Talk to us a little bit about that and how that's affecting the, the consolidation going on. In my mind, that's the number one reason for consolidation. So you look and you say firms, you know, you have to have an exit until the mid 90s, you know, there was potentially some consolidation there again, maybe that didn't work or not. But what was the typical exit strategy? The typical exit strategy is you would sell the firm to younger people within the organization. If you were smart. That's how I, I bought my data. Okay. And my firm was all aligned 
to have another generation of people buy us out. Okay, now it didn't happen, and you know we can talk about that, but it didn't. You know, but that was what we were trying to do. And uh, and for every partner I had, I had 33 partners at the end. I mean, how many young people did I have to have to get to place to buy out those 33 partners? So uh, that was the model. Okay? Now, what impacted that model was this millennial culture and this whole idea of uh, my my friend Rebecca's, Rebecca Ryan's book entitled "Live First, Work Second. And this was a book about millennials. And you go to the baby boomers and you say, if you wrote the same book, you know, what would it be? And they all laugh and they say the name of the book would be Work First, Live Second. So uh, you see these millennials who are setting themselves up to take your firm and they're saying, do I really want to do that? Do I really want to work all those hours? Do I really want to not go to the soccer games? Do I really want to be uh, uh, not being there for my family? And uh, and the answer is no. Now, the challenge is they want all the the, uh, the benefits as well, too, of being the partner. They want the money, they want the prestige, but they just don't want to work as hard. And, they don't want to pay for your retirement either, do they, Gary? Well, pay for your retirement as well, too. I mean, you know, so, so but but the element is, is that if you're smart and you're running these firms, the people you're going to have to buy buy from you, you've got to set it up so they're going to want to buy it. And, uh, and what does that mean? That means the culture has got to be a millennial culture. That's going to be uh, you know, the, the amount that they're going to pay for is going to have to be within reason. So where this really became challenging is firms that didn't get it. Um, you know, let me tell you an anecdote one of a firm that I was working with when I first started the consulting firm. It was a firm and um, it was in the Midwest. Very, very, very successful. And uh, one of the partners called me and they said, we need you to come here. We need help. Well, what's the help? Well, uh, we had the succession plan totally worked out. Perfect. Um, and then all of a sudden what happened is everybody we had in line with the succession plan has quit and gone somewhere else. So um, had me in, uh, you know, you know the answer pretty quickly. Um, and uh, this is something that's not new for me. I've been believing this for a long time. I walked around their offices. I talked about the firm, incredibly profitable firm. They worked really hard. But what happened was they created a culture that wasn't a millennial culture. And these three people, or four people said, I don't want to be here. I'm going to find a millennial culture. They were shocked when they left. So I went to the managing partner and uh, a partner group and they said, you know, well, what's the solution? And I said, well, the solution is you guys have to build a millennial culture. One that's not going to be as demanding. It's going to be, it's going to fit what they want to do. And I remember the managing partner, he, he goes and he slams his fist on the desk. He says, I, there's no way I'm going to do it. I'm going to find people exactly like us. <laughs> and uh, they're out of business now. Good luck with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because, he, because he couldn't find them. So, so what's happened is a lot of firms don't get it, don't know how to do it, or won't do it. And then you're finding firms that are smaller firms are dependent upon potentially someone buying them out internally. They can't find the people to do it. So what you're seeing is them trying to sell it to the larger firms and like kick it down the road, get some kind of economics based back for their practice. And, and it's not like this is happening to one firm in the United States. This is happening to 10,000 firms in the United States. So thus you could see just the amount of firms that are just not in these places. So within every city, you find these firms that have 10, 15 people, you know, successful firms, uh, but with a uh, with no real strategy to exit the firm going forward. And the only thing that's really left to sell somebody else. And what we're seeing also, just you know, just one more thing on that is we're seeing a depression of the pricing on that too, because the value is not there. You know, what are we buying? Can we say with any certainty that the traditional accounting firm hierarchy, equity model, partner model is broken? Um, it's changing. I mean, I'd say it was perfect until 10 years ago. Now I would say it's, it's changing and whether firms, and for some firms it will still work, but for a lot of firms it doesn't work. Um, and you know, that's where you're seeing is this private equity thing going to be able to work out? Are, 
Uh, are we going to be able to still compensate and bring in talent and give them enough for really good, talented people to want to come with us in this new model? And you know, I think that's the second challenge within this model. The first is to create the profitability to drive the private equity who's not doing this, you know, to be nice. They're doing it to make a lot of money. So how do you make more money out of it? But you can't make this money, as we all know, because this is a professional service. This is a people business without the right people. So is your model going to be there to be able to attract the best talent possible at the same time? And I think time is going to be tell. And all I could hope is that these private equities, you know, have at least an idea how they want to work this thing through. Well, what's appealing to a, a PE organization is the monthly recurring revenue from a service that is mandated by law. So there's always going to be a need for a compliance and accounting services. So that money comes in every month. It's a very elegant business model. If you can leverage that, there's some skin yeah, that, in the game. I mean, you know, let me, let me uh, bingo. You're 100% right. <laughs> that, that is the number one attractor for the private equity looking at this space. Number one attraction is to the, uh, the recurring revenue. Um, uh, that is absolutely it. They love it. You know, I used to always tell people, you know, it's the best business in the world. You go and you do something for somebody. If you do a good job at it, they're going to come by the same thing from you for the 30 years in a row. And it's I mean, a subscription economy, Gary, isn't yeah. it? It's amazing type business. You know, you look at the lawyers and, you know, the lawyers, it depends upon cases. They don't have that kind of, uh, they don't have that kind of recurring business all the time. So that's the number one attraction from private equity. Now, what that does is, you know, you're absolutely right. That gives you a tremendous foundation. But, you know, the success is going to be based upon what you can add to that foundation and how you can make it better. And that's what I think is going to be advisory services. Because if you take that individual tax return and because private equity is there, you're not going to be able to spend any more money on it. You're not going to raise the prices on it. No, where you can do well on it is now you can sell them a wealth management service or insurance or something like that. Can you see the death of managing partners and the birth of CEOs in professional service firms? Um, I, I would look at that a little bit differently. I wouldn't say the birth of CEOs. I would say, um, and this is not new, I, I would say the evolution of the C-suite uh, starting to run these firms more professionally. Uh, when I had my firm, uh, uh, we had a, uh, one of our advisors was the uh, Banshee partner for Jones Day, which is an international law firm, used to be headquartered in Cleveland, where I was from. He was incredibly valuable to me in terms of what I could learn from him. And, you know, one, that was one of the first things, you know, we talked about when he looked at Jones Day and he said, you know, we really started becoming successful when we had really professional managers. So, um, you know, sometimes, you know, you know, now you're talking about who fits into professional management. Can you do that with a, uh, with a CPA running the firm? Yeah, of course you can if you have the right CPA. But you could also deal with the non-CPA as well, too, in running the business. And then you get the whole ideas of a chief financial officer, a chief marketing officer. So I think this evolution of the C-suite and running it more like a business, I think, is a huge shift, especially for larger firms. Uh, that's the way that, in my opinion, that's the way they should be professionally. We're straight into the future now, Gary, and I want to ask you to get your crystal ball out. And you've seen so many trends and changes, some of which you couldn't have predicted but what do you feel is coming up in the next five to 10 years for the accounting profession? You know, one of the big elements, and, you know, I don't know what this is like on an international basis, but there's a there's a huge element in the United States. And uh, it has to do with something that people don't like talking about. And that's uh, the whole idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if you look at the accounting firm in the United States, what you find for the most part is a Caucasian uh, high percentage of Caucasian players in this game. You've gone and open the diversity box now. We've had the... Uh... Anton Lewis on Professor Anton Lewis talking about the, the predominance of white supremacy in accounting and where are the black accountants. So you're definitely hitting a, a, a hot topic here, Gary. Talk more. Yes. Yeah, so, so um, you know, what happens in the United States, I laugh at it. 
Uh, my firm, uh, we had the highest percentage of women partners of any top 100 firm. And along the way, we had the highest percentage of women leadership of any firm. I was really proud of that. I was really proud of what we were able to accomplish. Sorry. Was it double digit? Oh, yes. It was far away double digit. Well, the, the benchmark's quite low, Gary, is my point. Yeah, we, I mean, our, our, our women partners was 40% of the firm and senior leadership was 40%. And then our, our, in our ranks, uh, females were 55%, 60%. Uh, so, but, you know, regardless, you know, that was part of our strategy being suburban. You know, we'd like to get women who used to work for the big eight who they didn't, they didn't want to go downtown anymore. We were able to give them, you know, better, better positioning. So, um, you know, all that kind of stuff kind of played well for us in terms of, uh, of that. But when you do that, so you go to accounting firms today and they boast upon their women. Oh, well, we have all these women. You know, we're diverse. We have all these women. And, and it's, it's just bull. I mean... You know, you know, we're the blacks. I mean, we're the United States. We're the Hispanics. Okay. You know, where's that whole element? And, and when you will look at it, what you see is from a, uh, if you just take the, uh, the demographics of where the United States is today and where it's heading, and you compare that against the accounting firm, you know, all you see is there's big problems. And firms have really got to be able to understand how to educate and be able to just, it's going to have, it's going to end up being a, uh, a derivative of what your country looks like. So that's a big issue going forward. Um, and I think uh, in the United States, I think the United States has failed miserably at that, uh, really miserably um, in terms of their ability to be successful there. You know, how do you, how do you be successful? I will tell you, if you focus on it, you can be successful. At my little firm, we had 575 people. Um, we, we were like the United Nations. We had people <laughs> from Russia. We had Ukrainians. We had uh, people from all, really all over the world. We have a significant amount of black accounts. We really focused on it. So I think you could do that if you really work at it rather than just kind of kick it down the can. But it certainly would be better if, you know, if your international associations and associations, you know, they're the ones who are representing you could do a better job. I know that they've made some efforts, but I don't think they've really gotten the results that are really successful. Let's call them out for sure on being the voice of the profession. But you weren't being diverse in your approach to tick a, a box, Gary. You obviously saw some economic uplift of diversity in your firm and what those female partners were bringing to the table, didn't you? Well, you know, it's just the way I think. I mean, I never saw a difference. Uh, I just never saw a difference. You just went to the best you know, people for the role. Yeah, yeah right. And, and we saw opportunity. And, you know, and I just was briefly kind of saying was, you know, there was a point in time, this, I'm going back, I've been doing this a long time, but there was a point in time, I would say in the 80s and early 90s, that if you were a woman and you were working for a big eight accounting firm and you had a baby, your career was stalled, okay? They didn't know what to do with you, you know? And, uh, and what happened was we became suburban. One woman in particular came to work with me, a woman named Patty Rubin. She was great. She was bright. She had a kid and she couldn't figure it out. And Price Waterhouse told her, oh, we're going to figure it out. And she didn't believe him. And she ended up approaching, and I talked to her, and I said, we would figure it out. She had a 30-year career with me, and she became the model for people working for us. So we started saying, well, if they're not going to want these really talented people, there's no reason we can't do that. So what did that mean? We, it means we had part-time partners. We had to adjust schedules. We had to figure all that out. That was the cultural you know, difference we had. Now, the world has caught up with that, I think, to a you know, significant degree with respect to the women's side of it. But we still have these hurdles in terms of people of color. You know, that's just got to change. And final thoughts, Gary, what's coming up with private equity and M&A activity in the accounting world over the next few years? Where are we going to end up? Well, M&A is going to continue because of the baby boomer stuff we talked about. And this is not just the small firms, is it? We've seen really big firms now that are getting around the table and merging. Yeah, and that gets back to what we were talking maybe a little about before. Uh, what I think it was on this one in terms of brand recognition. 
you know, the bigger you are, you do have a chance to create a brand. So a lot of these firms like Dixon Hughes and BKD Hero Emerging, they're going to be a $1.5 billion firm. A lot of this is based upon the brand for talents, you know, their ability to really have a national brand where before it was just more challenging to do it. You know, the private equity side, I think is still very challenging. Um, you know, in order to get the uh, private equity interested in the beginning, you have to have firms that are incredibly profitable. I don't think most firms are profitable enough for private equity because what private equity is basically saying is I'm going to give you money for cash flow, uh, but then I have to enhance the cash flow. So that first question is how many firms can give money? So if the average partner is making $300,000, can they give some of that cash flow for a one-time hit of that uh, uh, infusion of uh, money to buy the firm? So they have to work that through, but usually you're finding, I think the private equity deals that are gonna be the more successful ones where you have the, the partners who are making a million dollars and say, yeah, I mean, I could live on 700, here's 300. You know, uh, Now you have a piece of what I'm doing. And then on top of that, invest and see if we can grow it from there. So I think the office is going to, uh, the audience is going to be limited, but nonetheless, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a tremendous amount of interest because it's there, um, and you're seeing you know you got forty four thousand CPA firms and three thousand private equities who were stalled a lot of them because they can't spend as much money. So now there's three deals that were done at the top one hundred firms in the United States. So now every private equity is you know looking at this and saying, hey, is there a spot for me? So there's a lot of interest at this point in time. You know, I just think it's going to be a couple of years to see if they could be successful or not in uh, in really ratcheting up the end. If I took you back. 30, 40 years, Gary, would you still come into accounting? Yeah, I um, I, I would, um, you know, I, I think um, I do some private equity stuff right now, which I kind of like, and it's kind of fun. I'm really, I think I'm good with growing businesses, but, um, I, and I don't mean to this, I guess I do mean this in somewhat of a derogatory way. People used to come to me over my, my whole life, and I live in a city called Cleveland, Ohio, uh, best known for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, it, it's, it's a nice city. It's a Midwestern city. You know, the population in the whole region is a couple million people. And, you know, we have great arts and we're on a great lakes and it's a nice place to live. Uh, but it's not in favor anymore. You know, it's, it's not sunny. It's not California. It's not Florida. Our weather's a little bit challenging. So uh, um, uh, the place I've been has been always had just headwinds, no tailwinds. And uh, I was able to grow this firm from Cleveland, Ohio, to the 37th largest firm in the United States. So people said, how'd you do that? And I said, well, when you're competing against CPAs, it's not that hard. And uh, and that's kind of, you know, where I was at. I, I think I was really a good accountant and I liked figuring things out and I helped like helping clients. But the reality was I was a better businessman than I was an accountant. And I happened to find myself in, a, uh, in an industry that you would think it would have great business people, but they just didn't. It was a contrary. So firms that are really good, firms that can execute, firms that are really smart can do really, really well. Gary Seamus, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and your insights today. This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett.